The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today is the last day of the church calendar. It is Christ the King Sunday. Next week, a new year in the season of Advent begins. Today, the Feast of Christ the King is a particularly well-known or celebrated day. That might be a result of its close proximity to American Thanksgiving, always falling somewhere between November 20th and 26th. It might also be because this feast day was only added to the church calendar less than a hundred years ago. The sentiment celebrated on this day is ancient, but the day itself only came about, was only recognized in the 1920s. And it came about as a response by the Catholic Church to increased secularism and the growing power of nation states as a way of asserting the the church's temporal power. Christ is king. The church as an expression of his kingship has a role to play. Put in that kind of context, the day may sit a little awkwardly with us. It perhaps feels like a power play, a, a grab for authority. And for some good reasons, we are distrustful of those who seek after authority, who claim power for themselves. From history, many of us have learned to be suspicious of those in authority, and especially suspicious of those who seek out power. But the machinations of the Catholic Church in the early 20th century aside, the reality to which this day points is different and good. Because Jesus and his authority, his kingship, are different And so very good. This morning, as we look at the gospel reading that we just heard read, I would like to outline in kind of basic fashion three reasons for this. Three reasons as a reminder, or perhaps even as a means of persuasion for us, to welcome and embrace the kingship of Jesus. Despite our suspicion and distrust, my hope is that by the Holy Spirit, we will together this day be persuaded to welcome Jesus as our king. Jumping right in, the first reason for this is that Jesus is a king who will be summoned. The immediate context of our reading in John 18 is a trial. And like the best courtroom dramas, some of the most important action takes place in the chambers behind the scenes. Pilate leaves the accusers of Jesus outside and enters into the palace. And here he summons or calls Jesus to further question him. This is a subtle and small thing, but speaks to something much grander that John, the writer of this telling of Jesus' story, wants us to recognize. That this king, Jesus, is different. And the expression of his authority looks unexpected. Jesus, according to John, as many of you will know, is the Word, the Logos, the Word that was with God and is God. And this Word, John's contention, the Christian claim is, this Word, through whom, by whom all things are made, drew near to broken and sinful humanity, took on flesh, put himself at the service of those who would come to reject and despise him, put himself in the situation where he might be summoned called or beckoned. Lenny Riefenstahl is among the most talented and famous filmmakers in the 20th century. 
Her film, Triumph of the Will, is still discussed to this day for its artistry and power. Unfortunately, that artistry was put to the service in the service of the Third Reich. Her films were propaganda for Hitler and his regime. And this key sequence in Triumph of the Will could have been taken from our reading this morning from Revelation as it depicts Hitler's arrival at the Nuremberg rallies prior to World War II. The shots are of the clouds, and descending like this flaming chariot comes this plane carrying Hitler to the glorying masses, like some divine figure to great acclaim, drawing near, but in pomp and honor. Anytime you use Hitler, it's obviously an extreme example, but we've come to expect, perhaps, such depictions of grandeur and glory from those in authority. We expect those in power in some way to lord their higher station over others. It's just the way things are. But Jesus' kingship, his drawing near is different. Yes, he descends, but not in glory. Or better yet, his glory is revealed differently. Not with pomp and ceremony, but with a servant's towel. And in a form that's not easily recognized. The Apostle Paul writes, he takes on the form of a servant and suffers in his service, even to the point of death for broken and sinful people who've despised and turned against him. He descends to the cross to death. And from there, for that reason, Paul writes, God has raised him up to life and even further to the highest possible places. The implication is we can do the same in our own lives. We can welcome him now as king. We can celebrate him as an authority worthy to be followed because he comes to serve. He's willing to be summoned because he sets aside the glory and honor that are due him for us. He's willing to serve that we might rise with him in glory, that we might be raised a kingdom of priests to share in his same heights. And this idea that Jesus might be summoned or called, I think has implications for us today, has implications for the life of prayer. It's not that Jesus like took on the form of a servant, the son of God, the word of God took on the form of a servant for three years and then he took it off like a Halloween costume. It's not an episode of that show like Undercover Boss, right? Where it's like, isn't it cute? The like CEO dresses up for a few weeks or something like that. There's this phrase that's often used for ordained ministry that says, once a deacon, always a deacon, right? Like once a servant, always a servant. That those in ordained ministry are to be characterized by service all of their like ordained life. And the same is true for Jesus, the son of God. He stands now ready to be summoned, ready to be called, called in your prayers, called to you in your suffering, in your grief. And the beautiful thing about the way that Jesus has risen and now intercedes for his children is that he does so as one who can identify with our suffering, with our griefs and disappointments. We had a service of lament last week, and many of you beautifully shared heavy things that you are carrying. And the reality is, is that Jesus draws near because he knows the grief that you carry. He has experienced, tasted it of himself. Our family last night was uh, closing the day before our kids went to bed with this prayer from the Celtic book of daily prayer, St. Patrick's Compline. 
And there's this one set where, this one area where it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I had to read it twice because you're like, that's kind of backwards. We would think of ourselves at his right hand. But the reality is, is that because Jesus was willing to be a servant, he is willing to come to you to be at your right hand. And the, the stanza of prayer concludes, I shall not be shaken. This is why you can welcome him, why you can crown him as Lord of your life, because he's willing to be summoned. Self-giving love marks out his authority. So we can embrace him as king. The second reason that we can welcome Jesus as king is because his kingdom is not of this world. This is a statement that is much misunderstood. Jesus here is responding to this question of Pilate's about why it is that Jesus has been brought before him. And Pilate's involvement here as the Roman governor is connected to the like, political nature of Jesus' death, his trial. Pilate here explicitly does not care about the internal religious debates the Jewish people are having. But what he is concerned about are the political implications of what is going on. And he's like, Jesus, are you a usurper? Are you a rebellious king? And Jesus' answer is not a declaration. This is very important. Is not a declaration that his kingdom, his kingship, has no political or public ramifications. That has sometimes been assumed that, like, it's entirely this spiritual, amorphous, private, inner thing. But that kind of perspective would put Jesus out of step with the whole witness of the Bible, the whole witness of the Old Testament, the prophets, the law itself. And Jesus, Yahweh's king, is always acting in line, in step with the story that God is telling. Jesus Kingship has implications for public life. His gracious reign and rule mean peace and justice, the right ordering of things. And wherever there's not justice or peace, where there's disorder that leads to death, leads to injustice, we can say that Jesus' rule needs to be made more manifest there. I want to say that very clearly. Jesus is not saying that his kingdom has no political implications, no public implications. What he seems to be declaring here has more to do with the identification of his kingdom and the source of its authority. By saying, my kingdom's not of this world, in response to Pilate, this representative of Rome, Jesus is like distancing his kingship from that of Rome's. It's not dependent on Rome. We are not about the same thing, he's saying. You and your kingdom are associated with the world. And the world in the Gospel of John always means the world in rebellion against God. And he's saying, my kingship is not a piece of that. It's not identified with yours. It's distinct. It's different. It's this separate thing. The kingship of Jesus is not identified with any earthly kingdom or administration. Not with Herod, the king of the Jews at this time. Not with Rome. Not with the British Empire. Not with the nations or administrations of our day. Governments may more closely or not approximate the values, the justice and grace of Jesus' reign, but they are never identified with that reign in a one-to-one -one fashion because Jesus' reign is not of this world. And even the best possible government that you can imagine that we might live under, that we might support, is of this world, is fleeting and finite, is marked by sin. A conclusion from that then is that the followers of Jesus, his servants, can and should engage public life, engage politically, seek the good of the city, the country around them, 
we can do so with a certain kind of freedom. Because their ultimate allegiance, their ultimate investment is in a kingdom that's not of this world, that's distinct. A kingdom that's never in doubt, that's never up for grabs, is an everlasting dominion, as we read in Daniel. And that distinction means the servants of Jesus can behave differently. This point relates to where authority is derived and Jesus' comments about his servants. The word that's used there in verse 36 for servants, that Jesus uses for servants, actually appears earlier in John chapter 18 to refer to the officers of the court who arrest Jesus. They're there with the soldiers and the whole band in the Garden of Gethsemane who take him into custody. And Jesus is drawing this distinction here. My officers don't fight in the way your officers do, Pilate. They don't fight in the way you would expect the officers of a kingdom of this world would. The ultimate authority that any kingdom or political institution has is ultimately rooted, this is a bold thing, but it's true, rooted in violence, right? The power to coerce, the power of the sword, as the Apostle Paul writes. We see this made plain anytime there's a coup or a change in government outside an election, right? There may be the recognized government, but it's ultimately the ability to enforce law, to provide, to enforce the will of the government by soldiers, by the police, by militias that carries the day on the ground. And the servants of such authorities fight to establish their reign, enforce their rule. But Jesus' kingdom, he says, is different, is better. His servants, his followers, don't fight in the same way because they do not have to. Because the rule, the reign, the kingship of Jesus is not in doubt. It's not rooted here and now the way every other's kingdom is. It's not from here, Jesus says. Not sourced here. Not drawing power from the dog-eat-dog world of human politics, of finite resources, of tenuous, weak holds on power. Rather, the kingdom of God is sourced in the life of God. It's the kingdom of heaven, from heaven, from heaven to here, sourced there, rooted there, in eternal unchangelessness, as our Book of Common Prayer has it. And because of that, because of the certainty of God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom being rooted there in heaven, it takes on a different quality, a different tenor. It's not characterized by the fear by the will to power that every other human authority is. It's not marked by scarcity or an impending loss of its grip. The kingdom of heaven will not be shaken. Whatever circumstances, whatever kind of the situation that we see unfolding is, the kingship of Jesus is not up for grabs. The certainty, the security of his reign are never in doubt. So the servants of his kingdom, of King Jesus, don't need to fight, don't need to coerce. Because whatever circumstances that are playing out here and now do not determine whether or not the kingdom's established. It's already been done. It's already secure. This, as I say, means tremendous freedom for the followers of Jesus. The freedom to not fight for our own sake, to not fight for Jesus' sake, it's not necessary. The kingdom is certain. It's the freedom to not cross certain lines, to not lose ourselves, to not lose our souls in the pursuit of the common good. The freedom to not see our hope as ultimately bound up in the human world of politics because we know that perfect justice, perfect peace are properties 
of Jesus' kingdom, and that kingdom is sure and certain. This also means tremendous confidence and safety. Jesus' kingship, because it's, it's sure, certain, it's sourced in eternity, need not be coercive, need not be abusive. His lordship, Jesus' lordship, is total and complete, calls for, wins our complete allegiance. But Jesus is not a tyrant. Jesus is not a bully. We know this. Tyrants and bullies are ultimately among the most insecure of people. And Jesus is not insecure. He is wholly secure, wholly confident of his kingship, that he can lay his life down. He can give up power. And because of his confidence, because of his certainty, his absolute security, you can be assured of his gentleness, of his care for you. This king will not use or abuse you. This king is the one who doesn't bruise a reed or snuff a smoldering wick. So you can welcome his authority. You can entrust yourself to him. You can welcome his reign and rule knowing his kingdom is not of this world. I so wish that that could be where I left things on this point. But the fact of the matter is that many of us have seen our lives touched by abuse or exploitation in the name of Jesus, in the church. Simply because a community bears the name of Jesus tragically does not mean that it won't be marked by insecurity, coercion, fighting for its own sake. Some of us know that very well. And some of us may now have a hard time entrusting ourselves to Jesus because of the abuse and coercion we've experienced in his name. Just recently, the clergy in our diocese participated in a workshop led by Diane Langenberg. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but she's a psychologist who works with trauma victims, often in faith communities. It was powerful and, and very well done. Uh, I'd gladly share the recording with you if you're interested. Just let me know. And you can check her stuff out online. And one of Diane's primary points was that those who have experienced trauma need the opportunity to talk, to process, and name what has happened. And she also made the point that they need time, that it can take years to integrate and experience a measure of healing or freedom from what has happened. It takes time. So I don't suffer from the illusion that my words this morning will accomplish what is necessary if you would count yourself among those traumatized. But I do think it's important, and this isn't the first time I've done this, to reiterate a simple truth. And that is that where abuse and exploitation happen, even in the name of Jesus, that is not of his kingdom. That is not the kingdom of Jesus, even when it happens in the church. And as a representative, right, a clergy person, I can tell you that if you have experienced such things in the name of Jesus, these things should not have happened. They are not reflective of his reign, and I am sorry that they happened. And Jesus is with you. Jesus, the king who will be summoned, whose kingdom is not of this world, who declares himself gentle and lowly of heart, is with you. If you need help, if you need assistance, do not hesitate to reach out. Jesus' reign includes reckoning in perfect justice, restoration, and healing. Set your trust in him. 
So where we've been, Jesus is the king who will be summoned. And Jesus, his kingdom is not of this world. Of course, all this might mean that Jesus is well-intentioned, but it does not necessarily mean that he is competent, right? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And perhaps we have examples of leaders who were well-intentioned but were inept, that their authority wasn't actually in line with what was really going on or what was needed in a moment. And this leads to a third reason you can entrust yourself to Jesus. As king, Jesus is witness to truth. Jesus, in response to Pilate, says, you call me king, and I came into this world to testify to the truth. In describing himself in this way, Jesus is stating that he bears witness to the full, the real state of affairs. So many times in Jesus' teaching, he says, truly, truly, amen, amen. And then he goes on to explain something. And he's saying, like, you can count on this. This is real stuff. There is no misinformation in Jesus. There's no spin. There's no ministry of propaganda in the kingdom of heaven. And this, of course, means that the followers of Jesus need not be afraid of the truth. Reality is their friend in every arena and realm at whatever level. All truth is King Jesus' truth and can be welcomed as such wherever it is found. But the truth, but the word truth in the gospel, in God, the gospel of John has this particular valence, this particular meaning. It specifically refers to divine reality, to the truth about God. So Jesus says in John chapter 8 that he reveals the truth that he has heard from God. And in John 14, he says, I will send you the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to guide others in the knowledge of God, which the world cannot see, cannot receive. And Jesus declares also in John 14 himself, the word of God, the Logos, to be the truth. He's the divine word, divine reality, embodied for all to see, touch, and receive. This is present in our reading from Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning both the revelation about Jesus and the revelation by Jesus. Jesus both declares the truth and points to himself as the embodiment of truth. So the idea here is that you can receive Jesus' kingship as uniquely authoritative, uniquely in line with the state of affairs on earth and also in heaven. You can welcome his authority, his words, as revealing the heart and mind of God. If you desire to know and be in line with reality, with God's purposes and plans, receive the authority of Jesus. Receive his kingship. Allow his words to be the defining words in your life. Today, now, for the first time, or yet again. As I said at our beginning, John 18 depicts a trial. And it seems at first like Jesus is the one on trial. But ultimately, it is Pilate who is tried and found wanting. He hears Jesus proclaim himself as the witness of truth. He hears that those who are on the side of truth listen to Jesus. And he misses it completely. It's not in our text, but Pilate's next question, the very next verse is, what is truth? And he leaves the room. He's too blinded, too distracted by his own power by his own sophistication, by his own wealth and station, perhaps, to understand and receive what Jesus is telling him. Too distracted by such things to receive the authority of the one true king. He's shown not to be of the truth. His moment of trial comes and he's found wanting. 
Yet the passage is not only Pilate's trial, but also our own. Indeed, the whole Gospel of John is written to force upon its readers, its hearers, this question. Will you believe? Will you take Jesus at his word, written so that you would believe him to be the Son of God, the King? Will we receive? Will we show ourselves to be on the truth? Or will we be deaf to the truth he bears witness to, the truth of his words, the truth he embodies? This is the great and awful life-defining choice. And it's a choice that we're confronted with each day. Yes, it's that moment of initial decision in baptism, in the confession of faith. And on Christ the King, what better day, what better time to crown him as Lord of our lives for the first time. Yet each and every day provides ample opportunity to cast our vote for the Nazarene, to receive his authority over our lives decisions great and small. So this hour, this day, this week, this culminating moment in the church here, receive him as king, confess him as Lord, the king who was and will be summoned, whose kingdom is not of this world, and who testifies to the truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.